17. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 17. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight and I hope that you'll bring your Bible along. Ryan Mitchell will be finishing the message he started last week. And uh, there's a certain sense of, uh, of refreshing in that, that I'm not the only guy that has a hard time getting one sermon in one message. Amen. Bill Casey said I dumped the whole load, but Bill, I want you to know he has two loads he's dumping. I want you to get a hold of that. But anyway, I appreciate very much your being here this morning, and I would urge you, let me urge you to be with us in Sunday school if you can. I believe with all of my heart that the Sunday school will be a blessing to you, and I know it will take a little extra effort, and I know you'll have to get up a little earlier, and I know that can complicate life big time. I know that. But I think the benefits would be and way outweigh the negatives and the difficulties and the challenges. And I believe with all my heart it would be a real blessing to you. And I believe it would be a blessing to all the people in the Sunday school who are there already to see you come and join us at the 9.30 hour on Sunday morning. And if you know folks who would like to come or need to come and need transportation, we'll see what we can do to help get them here. And also our VBS for this year is coming up. Brian Lane are leading us in that, and that will be coming up in June. And so, uh, and you wonder why I make these announcements on Sunday morning? Because some of you won't come back tonight, and you won't be back here Wednesday night. So I get one opportunity to make a paid advertisement, and this is my shot. So I want you to come and involve yourself this summer with the VBS. Then we go into July 4th, and July 4th we had the big festival in the city of Franklin. They use our parking lot for parking, and we get to distribute all the tracks that we have over the years and the popcorn and the and the uh, water, and so we'll do it again this year. The deacon has talked about that, and Brother Mike, if you can help us out with a machine as you always have, we'll get this job done, and we'll get out a lot of the gospel again. And then our our fair booth comes up in July, so please uh, make your plans now to work at the fair booth this year and pray for it, that the Lord will give direction in that. And again, we can saturate our county with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we're making June, July, August, and September four months of harvest at New Life Baptist Church. And we're really praying that we see decisions made of salvation, baptism, church membership, and people just get involved. Some of us here at the church have been here for years, and, and we haven't yet gotten ourselves into that little niche where we can really serve the Lord. And we want to help you get there. And uh, I want to help you get there. Some of you serve the Lord in a multitude of places. And you cover a lot of territory and ground. And I thank the Lord for you. But there are some folks who just haven't got in the niche yet. So let me help you and encourage you as the deacons and I want to see every member serving. And when every member of a church is serving, there's just a certain strength that is just not like it when a few carry the load. So let me encourage you to get on board, get involved, and be busy about the Father's business. Romans chapter 5, verse number 17, we read to verse 21, which concludes the chapter, and that finishes chapter 5. I don't know how long it's taken us to get through chapter 5, but I tell you, uh, the Lord has used Romans in the first five chapters to be a real help to me personally in my own life. I hope he has to you, and I hope this today would be a blessing and a help. Romans 5 and verse number 17 says, For if by one man's sin or offense death reign by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. It's important to remark and state again at the very beginning the importance of verse number 12, which we have already covered, but ought to be sort of a foundation for you to get as you read through verses 12 through 21. And if you haven't gotten familiar with verse 12, you should. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, let me say what I said at the very beginning of our study of this, and let me hammer it a little deeper into your heart. And that is, if you were born into this world, and you never committed a single sin for as long as you live, you'd still die and go to hell. A misconception in our churches today is that people go to hell for all the sins they commit. That's not true. 
This verse of Scripture says, if you die, if you are born and you live and you die, you'll go to hell because the, the judgment or the condemnation of sin that was committed in one man, Adam, back over there, has been, as it were, transferred to the whole of the human race. So everybody born in this world, if you never sinned a single sin, you would still die and go to hell because you're under, as it were, the condemnation of Adam. In verse number 12, I emphasize this so you can understand the most basic. The last phrase in verse 13 simply says, And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You can add this phrase without doing disruption to the text, and that is, all sinned in Adam. That's what it says, and that's what the Greek word would indicate in verse 12 for the word sinned. He's not talking about your sins that you committed. He's talking about the sin that Adam committed back there has been transferred as a federal head, as a representative of all the human race. And so every man, woman, boy, and girl will die because of sin. You know of any babies that died? Sure you do. You know why they died? They died because they're sinners, not because they sinned. Because they didn't know what sin was. They died because they're under the condemnation of Adam's sin. And so the misunderstanding is that, well, why do babies die? They die because they're sinners. They're born sinners. We're all born sinners. And we'll all die that way until we believe and unless we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And what this does is this. It eliminates this ideal of anybody trying to work his way to heaven. You see? You're under a condemnation of sin that was transferred from Adam to you. And I don't care what you do. I don't care what you don't do. It's not going to change that condemnation that's labeled across your forehead. And when God looks down from heaven, He's not looking down and saying, well, let's see how many good works Rick Henry did versus how many bad things he's done. And we'll decide whether we send him to hell. Rick Henry's on his way to hell in the first place no matter what he does. You say, is that fair? Yes, because justice truly... As God transferred Adam's sin to you because he was the federal head, when Christ died on the cross, he did the exact same thing. He said what Christ did, he did for the whole world. And in so doing, anybody who believes on Christ can take advantage of the payment of sin that he accomplished when he died on the cross of Calvary. So the same union we have in Adam that did us a disservice, we have access to the same union in Christ by believing on Him as Savior that He died for the whole world. And that, with that said, now let me take you back to the context of what we'll deal with today. In verse number 17 through 21, there's the title of the message, and you ought to get hold of it. It is, Nothing is Settled Until Authority is Settled. Now let me tell you, there's a, there's a message in the title of this message. There's a message in it. There is nothing is settled until authority is settled. Remind yourself of this. To have authority, to have authority, you must have been given that authority under God. Because God is the ultimate authority. It's been correctly said, and, and you should remember this. You will never be over what you ought to be over until you are under what you ought to be under. When I was in school, they hammered that in my head so much that I could, I could see it written on the ceiling of the wall at night. You know, you'll never be over what you ought to be over until you're under what you ought to be under. What it simply says is, if you don't submit to the authority that God has set in your life, you'll never accomplish what God wants for you. Because you didn't get it. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. And if you can't get that, that's the most fundamental teaching of the Bible. Uh, if, you, if you're going to be over something, you've got to first learn what is it I'm under. What is it that I'm under? Who, who's holding, as it were, authority over me? Who is it? And when I learn to respond to that properly, then I can move on. By the way, this is a, a great truth, I think, for, for children to learn. It is true for our children in our homes under parental authority. They will not rise to the possibility and the potential that they have unless and until they bow to mom and dad's authority in the home. So if you're living at home under mom and dad's authority, and it does not matter what your age, the point is, if you're under mom and dad's authority or their, their roof, you're under their authority, and your future success, to some degree, will be impacted by how well you submit yourself to your parents. And so all you young people in this room, you need to learn something. This is for your good that you submit yourself to your parents. You say, wait a minute, you understand my dad, he couldn't even, he couldn't even unplug the cord on the, on the, that's not the point. He's the authority in your life for this period of time, and God has placed you there. And if you do not submit to that properly and properly, you will never rise to the place God has for you. And that is certainly set forth throughout all the Scripture. I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a book, in a book written by Rick Jones. It's named, uh, the book is Stairway to Hell. I ran across this, and he has 
pointed out in this book that there are five lies that, sell, that Satan sells young people on. Five of them. One, that premarital sex won't hurt you. Premarital sex won't hurt you. That's a lie that Satan pawns off on our young people. Two, that suicide will end all of your problems. A lie from the devil. Three, that drugs are a great escape from reality. And we're all looking for that escape. You know, amusement parks. The word amuse, the ideal is to put your brain out of gear. That's what the word in the Greek means, to, to not think. Don't think. That's what an amusement park is. You can go there and you don't think about all you've got to do when you get home. You're sort of in another world, so you don't think. That's what amuse means. The ideal number four was that Satanism is fun. You can get power that nobody else has. So tamper with the devil a little bit. And the fifth lie that he sells young people on is this. Listen, that nobody has authority over you. That's the five lies that Satan sells our young people on. Nobody has the right of authority over you. I, I grew up on a farm, as all of you know, in Tennessee. I lived right next door to my granddad, and boy, what a blessing that was. My granddad's name was D.T. Dimps, DeWitt Tamlich. There was a great preacher years ago called DeWitt Tamlich. You may have heard of him, a good preacher. I don't know whether my granddad was born after him or named after him or not, but my, my granddad, D.T. Dimps, was also the man who taught me how to lead music. I've not had any, quote, really prescribed music courses. I had one in school, and really I think it hurt me more than it helped me. But anyway, the point is my granddad would get all of our stuff in front of the church on Sundays. You recall me telling the story and, and make us lead the music in the church I attended. And I hated it then, and I love music to this day, and I'm confident my granddad contributed that. But the point is I lived next door to granddad, and granddad had a small farm, and he had chickens on it. And granddad would go down to the co-op and get young chicks, you know, and bring them in little yellow things that ran on the floor like balls running all over the thing, you know, and had to have a special house in them, heated and watered and all that for a certain time. Then he'd open up the side door and they'd go out into a little yard. Then they got bigger and we'd go through that. And for those of you who didn't know this, they'd pick the best out of that and they'd kill those, you know. That's the way life is. You pick the best, you know. But anyway, you get them into this yard and then they live in there for a while and then they opened a fence between that yard and the next one, which was the big yard. That's where the big hens and the big roosters were. And they opened it up and they went through that gate into the next one. So it was a, it was a growing process. Little chicks in the room. Next you went into an open field here or maybe about a 40 or 30 by 30. And then you went out of that one into about a 100 by 100 field where they kept the big chickens. Well, when my granddad would go into the big lot to go pick the, you know, get the eggs, I can remember my granddad saying this. He had a stick. I don't have anything to show you it's like. But my granddad carried a stick, about like a walking stick, only it was taller, about this high. And there was a rooster in there. And this rooster was a Rhode Island Red. That's all they had, Rhode Island Red chicken. And that rooster had this black collar like around here of feathers, you know, that came down. And then he would pop his wings like this. And boy, when he got that head down and that feathers and the neck came up, you better be hunting a place to hide because this guy would come at you and he didn't necessarily peck you. Most folks think you've got to look out for the peck on the, on the beak. That's not what you look out for. You look out for the spurs on his legs. These corkers jump at you and he doesn't come. He, he, he cheats. He cheats. That's what he does. He doesn't come at you head first. He comes at you feet first and he jumps at you. And what he's doing, he's trying to catch you with the spurs. He's going to cut you. Let me tell you, this rooster thought he, he ran that yard. My grandfather's the one that put the chickens in it. My granddad's the one that built the shed. My granddad's the one that reared these, these chickens, raised them up from chickling. And my granddad's the one that built those places where they nested. My granddad owned that thing. And this rooster would come in there and my granddad would walk in the yard and he'd begin to cock his head and he'd begin to look and move his head down like this. And then it, you just knew it was coming. He's going to be coming feet first. My granddad carried a stick with purpose. But my grandmother did not appreciate you ever picking on the rooster. I mean, my grand, oh, you might hurt him, DT, don't do that. Well, my granddad always said this. My grandmother's name was Millie Ann. He said, Millie Ann, that rooster ran into that stick today. <laughs> Crazy thing. He'd run into it every day because my granddad carried it with purpose. But the point is this. When he'd walk into that yard, here's what my granddad said. I had never heard it till he said it, but since he said it, I've heard a lot of people, so I'm sure he wasn't the first. He would say, quote, it's not who rules the roost, it's who rules the rooster. It's not who rules the roost, it's who rules the rooster. And let me tell you something, there's a truth in that is fundamental and solidly based in Scripture as anything you've ever heard in your life. It's not who's the head of the home, it's who's the head of the head of the home. That will dictate what kind of home it is. 
It's not the pastor of the church and how dictatorial he is. It's who's over the pastor, whether he's what he ought to be or not. Who does he submit the authority to? Who do you submit your authority to? Who's over you? Somebody, somebody directs you and somebody urges you towards certain kind of principles and precepts and directions of life. Who is it? Who does that? You're not a world to yourself. You're not an island to yourself. You're under somebody's authority. And this passage of Scripture is coming down on this idea that, that the whole business of life and living is not settled until the issue of authority is settled. And you can tell it. See, in verse or chapter number 5, you have several references that will tell you. Look in verse 17. You have the word reigned. For if one man's offense, death reigned by one. Then he goes on and talks about reign in life, verse 17. And then in verse number 19, he talks about disobedience and obedience. Those, and then again in verse 21, he talks about reign and reigned. Those words have to do with authority. You see, you don't have to obey somebody if, if they're not in authority over you. So obedience doesn't matter. If, if there's nobody reigning, then there's nobody to reign over. The point is, these are words that relate to and have something to do with authority. So the first thing you ought to see when you come to Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 through 21 is, what is he trying to tell me? What's he talking about in this business of authority? Let me put it to you simply. When a person comes to understand that he or she was born a sinner and that they sin because they are a sinner and they are convicted by God's Word and God's Spirit of the sinfulness of their life, the lostness of their life, they then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work of the cross and Him being their personal Savior. At that moment, they change kingdoms and they change leadership. They change authority, as it were. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the devil, and the kingdom of death, they exit. And they enter the kingdom of God's dear Son, as Paul wrote in the epistle. And in that kingdom, it's a new kingdom, it's under new management, it's a new authority, and it's under a new kind of rule. Jesus Christ said one time to a group of people who were sort of hostile to him in John chapter 18 in verse 36 Jesus answered my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now is my kingdom not from hence his point was his was a unique kingdom his was not like the other kingdoms of the world his was not one whereby people uh, had physical power and that physical power was the determining factor of who was in charge God has more power than all the presidents and all the kings and all the world put together. And it has nothing to do with physical power. He is the one who cast, as it were, the stars into space. And he's the one who made this thing function and operate. He has all the power. All power is of God. God gives it or God created it. And the concept is God gave man the ability to think it through. This passage of Scripture goes with what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 14. Listen, Paul said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, or in other words, not physical kinds of things. He said, But the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That fits exactly to what Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1 said when it says, Romans 5, 1, we're justified by faith, and it is by or through that that we are declared righteous. We have peace both with God and we have peace of God, and we joy or we rejoice in the hope of glory. That's what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 said. So that's the description and the characteristics of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not where a bunch of people are fighting over authority or power. Then it's already settled. God is in charge. God has that authority. And we are His servants working in His vineyard, doing as it were His bidding. And here he says in context, Romans chapter 5, that's exactly the characteristics of the kingdom of these people who've been saved by the grace of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy. One other thing is Romans chapter 5 verse 17 makes clear. Death in this context by sin entered this world. That means that the fact that when sin entered the world, death, Romans 5, 12 states, passed upon all men because all people sinned in Adam. People die because they're sinners. Everybody. Every baby that's died, died because it's a sinner. Died not because of the sins it committed, because it's a sinner under the auspices and the condemnation of Adam. So what happens with that? The ideal is that because of that fact, because death reigns and because death holds bondage over people, there are people in this room this morning who are under the authority of death. And you know how I know that? Because I'm going to sit here feared and scared to death to die. That's how you know where authority is. See, authority 
certainly suggest a certain amount of respect and fear in some cases. We hear talk years ago when I was growing up that, you know, put the fear of God in him. What he meant was, get this person to understand God's authority over him, that God could do in a heartbeat whatever God wanted to do to him. Teach him the fear of God, meaning teach him that God could take him out with just a whim of a wish. And what he was saying is teach that. Teach people to understand the authority of God. If you're sitting here this morning and you have a great fear of death, the Bible would tell us this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. I read it at almost every single funeral I have. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That means that Jesus Christ came into this world, was born as a human being in a manger in Bethlehem, took upon himself, being dead, he took upon himself flesh and blood, that through his death he might destroy him that had the power or authority of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject, subject to bondage. You see, what the point of Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross was not only to provide salvation for you, it was for you to be, as it were, rescued from this authority of Satan's plan to make you bondage and in bondage and in fear, concern, anxious about death and dying. His idea was, we'll rescue, and that's what Christ did. Christ died so that you and I could live. And he died so that you and I wouldn't have to fear death. But when you find somebody who fears death and dying, you find somebody who's still putting themselves under the authority of death. And the whole point about the scriptures here is that Jesus Christ conquered death, conquered sin. He gave us a new authority and we reign with him. You see in verse number 17 again, it was through Adam's sin, death came on all and he put everybody in bondage. Now look at verse number 17 of Romans 5. For if by one man's offense, that means his sin, his stepping out of bounds, his doing what he shouldn't have done, doing what he was told not to do, that's what the word offense means. Man's offense Death reigned by one, much more they which, note the word, what is it? They which, they which, say it a little bit louder so I know you're alive when you're speaking. Received. Received. Okay, key point, because in that verse of scripture, that gives you the basis of entry into this new authority. How did I get it? I received it. Did I earn it? That's not what the word receive says. Word receive says, and says much. That this is the only way you get into this privilege of being set free from this bondage. In verse 17, abundance of grace by the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. It's saying what you receive from Jesus Christ by receiving, believing on Him, you no longer have to be under the reign and authority of the devil and of self and of sin and of death. You don't have to. So if you are, you sit there because of your own choosing. Because what Christ died on the cross for is to set you free from all that and put you into His kingdom, which says you don't have to fear any of that. I've dealt with every single one of those things. And I dealt with them well. I dealt with them good. I dealt with them thoroughly. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. You understand here, we should be noted that Adam and Eve sinned because they wanted to be like God. Have you forgotten that? You remember Eve heard Satan's cell pitch and he said, you want to be like God? You, you want to be like God? Let me tell you how to be like God. You see that, that tree over there that he said, don't go eat from? Go over and eat from it. You want to be like God, Eve? Go eat from that tree. It'll make you knowing good and evil. You'll be just like God. You'll have all... It's interesting, isn't it? Here's a woman who wanted to be like God. And what happened? The devil comes along and sells her a bill of goods. He deceives her. And might I remind you this morning that Satan is the great deceiver. That's his whole life. Jesus Christ's whole life was to speak the truth and live the truth and be the truth. Satan comes along and everything he does is to deceive you. He's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of every lie. He deceives. He takes things that are and tries to make them so that they appear to be something they are not. That's why we call sin the counterfeit killer. He makes sin look inviting until you sin. And then he said, "Up, oh, you're hopeless, stupid idiot. Why'd you do that for? And he's the very guy that led you up to it and encouraged you to do it. And then he mocks you for doing it. That's the way he is. 
But I say to you that in this context, this passage of Scripture, though the devil is the deceiver, when Eve took of that tree, the very opposite of her desire came to be. She didn't become more like God. She became less like God. She introduced, as it were, in her life and then eventually into the life of her husband, the very thing that God hates more than anything else in all the world, sin. And I remind you, but just as the act of one man, Adam, put us in the mess we're in, the act of one man did set in motion the work to do and to bring about in Adam and Eve's case the desire that she had and he had to be like God. Jesus Christ set in motion the work that makes it possible for you to get back for and to what Eve wanted, be like God. And it was that it would be through the Lord Jesus. And verse 17 states it, Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Much more, I might add, than Jesus Christ just giving us back what we saw Adam sin away. The truth is in this matter that he gave us abundant life. It means much more than just living. And he also did this. He gave us the ability to reign in life. And that's an important thing because verse 17 tells us that this thing about reigning is a big deal. You reign with Christ in life. Those who know Christ as Savior, what it tells you is this. One, that sin no longer has dominion over you. And boy, when we get to Romans chapter 6, that's about what the whole thing is going to be about. Uh, whose authority are you under and how are you responding to it and how are you relating to it and so forth. But this right now is a great truth. And that is why sin does not reign in our bodies. Why? Because we reign with Christ who died for us so we could be free from that authority. We don't have to. You do not have to sin. Did you know that? You don't have to sin. You sin because you choose to sin. Will we sin? Sure we will. We're in the flesh. As long as we're in the flesh, we're subject to those gravitational pull of sin and the lust thereof. But the fact is, Christ died on the cross to pay our sin debt and to set us free from the bondage of death and sin. And so you don't have to. Some people think, well, but everybody does it. That still doesn't make it so you have to. You have a choice. Every statement that you make that's wrong, every lust that you have that's wrong, every single, you have a choice. And you make that choice. And that's the results of it. Interesting also to note here, please, in that very phrase in verse number 17, he calls it the gift of righteousness. You notice that? You ought to underline that. I'll tell you, the gift of righteousness and what that says is very simple. God demanded that righteousness be your standard when you come to him. Did you know you can't even come into God's presence without righteousness? You can't even pray. You, there'd be no need for anybody in this room coming to God and just saying, God, now listen, I got a, I got a grocery list of stuff I need done. And I, I'm serious. You're going to have to do this, and I want it done right now. Can you imagine that? And a guy not having any righteousness at all. Let me tell you, God demands righteousness if you're going to come into his presence. And what does he do? You can be grateful and thankful and humble by the fact that God provided what he demanded. And he provided that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God gave, through Christ righteousness to each of us who believe on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe on Christ and His finished work as a gift He gave to you. See verse 17? It says it's a gift of righteousness. He gave it to you. Now what happens is this. He demands it. He provides it. And what's exciting about that is the emphasis is on the ideal. It's a gift. It is not earned. It is not payment for deeds to be done. It was not bought on installments, so when you get to heaven, you've got to work after hours. After all the rest of us have gone to bed and rested, you've got to work late. That's not what it's about. It is a gift. And he says this gift is yours simply by placing faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, in his abundant grace, not only gave us a gift of righteousness, but Paul wrote it earlier in the epistle to the Corinthians. He also gave us a ministry of reconciliation. You remember that? In 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 listen to this in verse number 21 this passage of scripture says very simply verse number 21 in the passage that I would speak about and talk about that I have uh, on two or three occasions read this verse to someone and them, their attitude was well I don't believe that's for me well let me encourage you and just listen and then we'll talk about who it's for he says for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gift. And Paul was writing from the standpoint of the Christians at Corinth and included himself, for he made him to be sin for us, 
So this morning, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you understand Christ was made sin for the whole world and those who believe or receive Him and those cases, He said, you got the righteousness of God. God handed you a gift and said, by believing on my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and not trusting your works of keeping the Ten Commandments, of being baptized, of joining a church, of trying your hardest to be a good person, when you understand it had nothing to do with any of that, but Christ died for you and then He handed you righteousness as a gift. He says, understand, that's what I gave to everybody. But understand this, because you receive that, you also get this. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. Listen now, something else He gave you. And hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what that means? That means that God not only gave to you the gift of righteousness so you could be in heaven someday and live a righteous life here in the context of serving the Lord and serving Him in a way that would affect the lives of others, but He also gave you a ministry. You have a ministry. The moment you came to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were given a ministry. Every Christian in this room has been given a ministry. And that ministry is, is to take this message of salvation by grace through faith and a gift of righteousness and take it to the whole world and tell them the same thing. When you take that message out, and by the way, He gave it to you the day you trusted His Son as Savior. The moment you walked down the aisle, believed on Christ, He handed you the righteousness as a gift, and at the same time, He handed a gift to you as a ministry, and He said, now go tell somebody else exactly what this thing's all about. You tell them they don't go out and try to keep the Ten Commandments. You tell them don't go out and try to get baptized in every baptistry between here and Louisville, Kentucky. You tell them they don't need to go join every church, and you tell them that it's not how good they are. You tell them it's how great Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross that took care of the whole payment. That's what you go tell them. And you have that ministry and you have that opportunity. And by the way, anytime God gives a ministry, He gives the power to carry it out. And so when He gave the gift of righteousness, He gave the ministry of reconciliation. And with that ministry, He gave the power for you and I to do it. You say, well, I, I, I can't do that. I get tongue-tied every time I start talking. Let me tell you something. You just start talking. And you make sure that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece, the core of what you're talking about. And He'll help you from there. That's what we call an act or a step of faith. So many of us think we have to be a, 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 some kind of scholar in the Scriptures to just to tell somebody, whereas once I could not see and I was blind, now I do. And the difference was made by Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. You have to be a beggar knowing where you can get bread and just tell them where he is. They'll find him, they'll know him, and they'll trust him. And it's as simple, and we sometimes try to make it so complicated. And even our children sometimes, I think, look at us and say, say what? But I say to you, it's a gift of righteousness. Now look quickly, if you would, for the last two verses, or verses 18 and 19, quickly before we close. Verse 18 and 19 says, Therefore, based on everything I've said before, and by the way, the therefore goes all the way back up to verse number 13. See, verse 13 14, 15, 16, and 17 were really in a parenthesis in most of your English Bibles. If you look at that, at the beginning of verse number 13, there's a, there's a parenthesis. And at the end of verse number 17, there's a parenthesis. Why? Because what he started in verse number 12, he's really now coming back to in verse 18. Therefore. So the one in verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one. That's how it reads. The rest of it's a parenthesis. Uh, I'm here to tell you that Paul the Apostle is like a lot of preachers. He'll start saying something, and as he's talking and speaking and teaching, something else comes to his mind. So verse number 13 came to his mind, and then to explain 13, he started 14. Then he got off on 14 and said, well, there's also this other matter, and 15. And by the way, let me tell you about 16. And then he got down to 17. But by the way, let's get back to what I started back in verse 12. That's what preachers do. If you haven't been around long enough, you'll find that here. I've done it a thousand times. And sometimes, by the way, forgot where I was going after I left verse 12. Where am I heading? Where did I start with this thing? How did I get off to that? But the fact is, that's what he did. And so in verse number 18, he comes back to it. He says, therefore, and he explains his point. I explain the point in this. Paul seems to be saying to his group of listeners, some of you are sitting here and you don't believe a word I'm saying. You're saying this is too good to be true. 
And therefore, you're having a hard time embracing this. So what does he do in verse number 18? He simply repeats what he'd said before. Verse 18, Therefore, as by offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many, that's all of us, were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many, that's us, be made righteous. So Paul just repeated it. He said, I know you don't believe it. Let me just repeat the whole thing. It's a correct statement to say that the provision in this cape is, is as deep and as wide as the problem. And somebody else said it this way. It's not only that he loved us and he lifted us, but he has also loosed us from the bondage of the kingdom of sin and death. And he did it for all of us. All of us. Sin and death no more have authority over you if you are, in fact, in Jesus Christ. But by the way, as always with scriptures, make sure you keep it in context and make sure you let the context bear the truth of what we call the centerpiece. And this is a good illustration of it because some people look at this text and say, Well, look, Pastor, it says all men in verse 18 here uh, were sin. Verse number 18, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men, all men, to condemnation, so by the righteousness of one, the free gift upon all men. Does that mean everybody's saved? No, because the context doesn't say that. Remember back up there in verse 17, it said, There were much more they which receive the abundance of grace. It's a matter of receiving, so keep it in context. All men mean all men. Everybody in the world, what we would say is, it is a fact that judgment passed upon all men for that all have sinned in Adam. It is not equally true that all men receive the gift of righteousness. That's the statement that needs to follow that. So you need to hear it, see it, and understand it in its context. Judgment comes upon all who are born. Justification comes upon all who are born again. By the way, that's an interesting phrase in verse number 18 where it says justification of life. You need to understand this. Justification is not just a legal, technical term which describes our position before God. It's a certain kind of life we live, a justified life. And what I say with that, it's the 2 Corinthians 5, 17 life. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a Galatians 2, 20 kind of life. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's that kind of life. The justification of life. And that's what he talks about in that context. I remind you as I remind myself. And as you come to verse 19, every believer ought to remember that it's disobedience to God's one command that plunged the human race into the quagmire of sin and ruin. I would also remind you that it was Jesus Christ perfectly obeying his Father while he was here on the earth that not, I guess you'd say that only in a sense, proved that he was qualified to obey the Father even to death and sacrifice of his life for sin. What I want to say by saying that is this, that it was not his obedience on this earth in the flesh that saved anybody, as some of our liberal friends try to tell you. It was his death on the cross. His life on the earth simply proved that he was a qualified person to do it. He fully obeyed the Father. He did everything the Father said, but it was not in his obedience to the Father that saved the world. That only reflected the fact that he was a, a qualified candidate. He was a qualified person, a qualified lamb to die on the cross as a sinless son of God. Then closing with verse 20 and 21, quickly. Not uh, so smart people, I guess is the way to put it. I've only met a few of these, but I have met a, a couple. Not so smart people who will look at verse 19 or verse 20 and 21 and tell you that God is responsible for all sin. Verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. You see that phrase? They use that phrase of Scripture and put it in some of their booklets and say, Actually, God is responsible for sin. And they use the reasoning, Moreover, the law entered. Who gave it? God. Who gave it to? Moses. God gave to Moses the law. And what happened? Offense just exploded. Sin just went wild. And they'll read that text and they put it in one of their brochures and they say, God is responsible for sin. And then they carry their reasoning a step further. Therefore, sin can't be bad because ultimately God created it. God made it. God caused it to be. And then they get all wild and woolly about what they do and how they live. But the fact of the matter is that's not what God was saying in this context. Understand quickly these things. One, God has always dealt with people in grace. Always dealt with people in grace. 
We sometimes in a Baptist circle think that God dealt with law and then God dealt with grace. That's not true. But law and grace are two distinct things, no doubt about it. But God has always dealt in grace. Why? It was Noah even that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. From the beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation, God works in grace. He never quits, never has, never will. The fact of the matter is that God gave the law not to replace grace. That wasn't the ideal law. Not to replace grace, but rather to show man's need for his grace. That man could not keep up to the standard of the law. That man could not keep the law. So God gave grace. Interesting thing, too. God gave the law in order that man's consciousness of sin would be sharpened, as we might say. Somebody likened the law as unto a magnifying glass. And I think it's a good likeness. But an instrument like a magnifying glass does not actually increase the number of dirty spots on your clothes that you might be looking at. All it does, it makes them clear for you to see. It makes you more aware of them. It does not multiply them. So the good news is, even as the law magnified sin, and as the law made it obvious that men sin more than people may have perceived before, the fact of the matter is, God's grace, verse 20 says, that as that offense became more obvious, so did God's grace become more conspicuous also. Where sin abounded, grace did superabound, or much more abound, as your Bible says. And understand this, disobedience to the law has never damned a soul to hell, and obedience to the law has never brought a soul to God. Never has, never will. Why? Because it would be works of men. Men could do it themselves and wouldn't need God. they just keep the law. You know, keep the law, obey the law, and you've got it made. That's not the way God worked it. His idea was to give us the law so man would see how in, unable, incapable he was to make that standard. And he would have to, quote, give up. As he gave up, as he gave in, the grace of God would take over. I remind myself of this, that people who see signs that read, Do not walk on the grass, and then they walk on the grass, simply are demonstrating and telling you and I that they have a natural rebellion against authority no matter where they sit. There's nothing wrong with a sign and there's nothing wrong with the guy who put it up. But because it places a restriction, as it were, on somebody's personal freedoms, the reaction of a sinful heart is to disobey it and sometimes utter these words, I am not under anyone's authority and nobody's going to tell me what to do. I can tell you that only says that's really where they're speaking from their heart because that says they're still under authority. The devil's authority, sin's authority, death's authority. And I remind you as we started, nothing is settled until authority is settled. Until you get that matter of authority and it coming under authority of God settled, nothing else in your life will be a settled authority or settled matter until authority is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior and is born again is the way to be absolutely sure you're under God's authority. And I mean by that, that's what instigates it. You'll still have to read His Word and bow to His will. That's a daily thing, and the flesh won't give in easily. But it can be done. It is a life issue. A life issue. I want you to see this as we close, and I promise this is it. In verse number 17, there's the word in verse 17 about, in the last phrase, reign in life. That means you're not ruled by sin or death or the fear thereof either. Reign in life. That's our position. We reign in life with Christ because He's our Savior. He's our Lord. We reign with Him. Now, He's our authority and our master, but there's a sense in which we reign in life with Him. Then verse number 18, that last phrase in verse 18, justification of life. That means a kind of life that declares to all people that meet you and greet you and that you have anything to do with. It tells those people that Christ has made you free. It declares that someone outside of yourself came to you to take care of a need you had that you could not fix on your own. It is a justification of life, something that changed your life from outside of yourself. Then there's a third phrase in verse number 21. It's eternal life, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. That's not just here and now, but it's hereafter life in heaven with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of our loved ones who knew Christ who've gone before. This matter and this whole issue is a matter of life and matter of authority. Let's get down to personal matters. And we close with this. Let me ask you a simple question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you came to understand what the Bible teaches so conclusively as in Psalm 51 verse 5? 
Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Did you come to a point where you said, Look, I am a sinner. I know I am. I am a sinner. The Bible says I am, and I know that I sin. Sinners sin. And I know that. I know I'm a sinner. Did you come to a point and say, Look, I know there's only one thing I can do, and that is to, because I can't save myself. God doesn't accept my good works. He, it doesn't matter that I keep the Ten Commandments. It doesn't matter that I got baptized. It doesn't matter I try to do good. I try to obey laws in the land. It doesn't matter. I'm a sinner, and I know God's going to judge me for that basis. I turn my life over to Him. I say to the Lord, Lord, save me for Christ's sake. Has there come a time in your life where you recognize you were a sinner? Sinner, even in Adam, even though you may have never sinned a sin? Though that's not likely true, that you haven't. But two, you realize you couldn't save yourself and you turned to someone else and the only source you knew of hope was in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, this morning you sit in this auditorium under the lordship or authority of the God of heaven. You're not under the authority of sin. You're not under the authority of death. You're not under the authority of, of anything else in the world. You're under the authority of Jesus Christ. And you placed yourself there by placing faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your lot this morning? Or are you still in fear of death and dying? Are you scared to death of what's going to happen the next minute? Or are you living a life of fear? If you are, my friend, you're not living in the context of what God did for you in Christ. There is no fear for those who are in Christ Jesus. And perfect love casteth out fear. And the scriptures are quite clear this morning that if you're here and you have never trusted Christ and that fear is still in your life, you can get rid of it today. And you do so by taking God at his word, simply obeying him. And he said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now I admit that takes something to believe that there was a dead man in Jesus Christ and God the Father, after seeing that the Son had lived a perfect life and died a pure sacrifice for our sins, then raised Him from the dead. I admit that takes something. That's something that no preacher on this earth has ever done or ever will do. And don't you forget it. No preacher on this earth has ever raised a man from the dead. None of the preachers you see on Channel 42, none of the preachers you see on Channel 40, and none of the preachers you see in any pulpit across this land have ever raised a man from the dead. God did it with one, and it was His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He raised from the dead. And He raised Him from the dead to say, everything my Son said and everything my Son did is absolutely under my authority. And if you want to be free from the fear of death and dying and to know that there's a resurrection in your future, you believe on my Son as your Savior, and it'll be yours. Do you know Christ? Whose authority are you yet under this morning? Are you still a servant of sin? Do you have a ring in your nose that the devil leads you around and tries to get you to do all of his bidding? Or do you have a new master, a new Lord, a new King? I say this to you. Jesus Christ has done all he's going to do. The monkey is on your back and the ball is in your court. And the decision is yours to make as to how you'll live this life. And how whether or not you'll bow to his authority and lordship or whether you'll be a rebellious brat for the rest of your life. May God help you to embrace the truth. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it and for the encouragement that it brings to heart and mind and soul. And Father, we thank you that the blessing of what Christ did for us is so clearly set forth in the Scriptures. It's ours to embrace and believe. We do not have to be slaves of sin and slaves to the fear of death and dying. We can rise above that. We can be assured as believers that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far, far better. And Father, we can know that sin will no longer have dominion over us as we get in next week to Romans chapter 6 and see very clearly that what Christ did for us on the cross is a long-term, far-reaching ramification. And Father, I pray this morning, give our people here victory over these things. I pray for any who may be here who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior as we begin this invitation. May they simply leave the pew from where they're seated and come to the nearest aisle and allow someone to take a Bible and show them from the Scriptures how they can be free from the authority of Satan and sin and all the things of this world that so wrangle us against thee. Speak to our hearts, work in our lives, and bring forth the fruit you've ordained for this hour. For Christians who ought to come for baptism, for church membership, for prayer, whatever the need is, help us to act upon that which we've heard and which we know, and help us then to become doers of the Word as believers. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282 in your hymn book. We sing the first stanza, and we shall not tarry. So please, if God has spoken to your heart, let me encourage you, exhort you to act upon it immediately, and let God be honored and glorified by your quick submission to His Word. So I ask, if you know, don't know Christ as Savior, allow us to show you. Allow some of our men to show the men, ladies to ladies, and we'll help you to know Christ and know Him in a personal way, right out of the Scriptures themselves. But it'll take your act of faith by making the first step. So may I invite you to come as we sing. 282 verse 1, you simply obey the Lord, would you? As we sing, please. Just as God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and your attention. Thank you for giving it to us, and thank you for being with us here at the New Life Baptist Church today. We've been blessed by your presence, both the membership of our church and your faithfulness, and to our guests, thank you so much for coming, and do please come again to be with us. Tonight, Brother Ryan Mitchell will be speaking in the evening service, so bring your Bible, be with us at 6, and of course, please stay with us for the fellowship to follow. This evening, we celebrate April and May birthdays in the, the ministry building, and that'll take place after the evening service. I hope you'll come and spend some time with us in fellowship, and uh, relax and enjoy your yourself for a bit. We'd like to get to know you a bit better. Let us pray and we'll be gone. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity again that you've extended to each of us and allowing us to be in your house this day. It's been a real honor. Thank you for the Sunday school hour and the lessons we heard. Thank you for all of our Sunday school teachers and their faithfulness to teach your word. We're thankful and grateful for good Sunday school teachers. Bless all of ours here at the church and those who teach in the other ministries on Sunday morning worship in the junior church and those who teach on Wednesday night. We're just grateful for all the people who have taken on the mantle or responsibility of teaching the Holy Scriptures and pray that your blessing would rest on them, each of them, and help them, Father, to have your blessing both from the attendance of their classes and, and the blessings they see in that, but also the blessings of growth they see in those who sit before them. Grow us all in uh, grace and knowledge of yourself. And, Father, thank you for this the worship service and the opportunity we've come to focus our thoughts on you and what you've done for us and what we need to do for you. And so as we focus so much about the great work of Christ on the cross, thank you so much that we've been given a gift of righteousness that came out of that. And now we've also been given a gift of reconciliation, of matching up men who are lost in their sin, men, women, boys, and girls, and introducing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us now to discharge our responsibility. Help us to go out of this place and see the world as a mission field. And help us to share the gospel with every opportunity we are given. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and the righteousness that's ours in Christ. We rejoice in today. In his name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.